we are humans first and that brain can only do so much when it's stressed. And the, the smart parts of that brain and the long-term memory parts of that brain when you're stressed stop working at their capacity because you're, you're worrying and ruminating about the unknown or the things that you're scared about. Um, and so it does that. Our brains are not meant to make us happy. Our brains are to keep us alive. Welcome to Rotten Apples, where we share the best ideas in education, whether it's learning space design, restorative practice, or simply teacher self-care. We're learning from the experts who cut through the BS and find out what's really working and what's not in our classrooms and schools, making St. Louis home to the best educators in practice today. everyone. Welcome to episode 14. We are going to be discussing trauma in schools today, an incredibly relevant topic in light of obviously all of the disruption going on with COVID-19 and our schools having to move online, states and regions gradually grappling with how to reincorporate, how to try to get back to some level of normal. It's going to be quite a while before we're able to get there. So many things have changed. There are so many things that we can and should talk about going forward, but this is a topic that I wanted to address in particular with our guest, Michelle Benedict, for a few different reasons. First of all, trauma as it has has been used in professional development workshops, speeches, uh, over just the last few years, it's become a very hot topic of conversation, and the and I and everyone say you know trend when it comes to uh, trauma, but it's the this is definitely some verbiage that is new to most of what we talk about when we talk about kids and learning, and so the idea of a trauma informed school is something that certainly everyone is aware of, but what it actually means and how it translates to kids can vary significantly. And after, you know, 20 years in the field, I just have a a really expert eye rolling routine every time we come across new research or new books or, or things that come out and give us another problem to tackle. And so while I love having conversations about these things, I'm always really kind of skeptical around how important is this really? Is this somebody's pet project or is it something really substantial? And obviously we are moving into a phase where this is hitting 100% of us. There isn't a single person who will come back to the schools in the fall who has not been traumatized by this experience. And I love when I have my own deeply ingrained ideas severely challenged by something like this. And so the reason I want to have Michelle on in particular is that she is not a theorist. She is not, you know, a massive researcher. She presents and speaks on this stuff all the time, but she's an elementary school teacher. And as she talks about in her interview, she goes into a lot of depth around her own personal experiences with trauma, her own experience as a student, as a teacher, the things that she sees in her classroom. She speaks teacher very, very fluently. And so in this, it was really, really hard to narrow this conversation down to something reasonable. I normally try to keep it 30 to 45 minutes. There was no way to do that. We talked for almost an hour and a half. So I decided to break it down, cut out a little bit, and then make it into just two segments. First one this time, we're just going to talk about kind of big picture things. What does trauma actually mean? What does it look like in schools? How might it look a little different, you know, going forward? And then in part two, we're going to get into some very specific, detailed, actionable steps that we can talk about 
not just with students, but with staff who are also going to be dealing with this stuff on an ongoing basis. And this is definitely an ongoing conversation, but wanted to at least get the conversation going with this. And the reason why I thought it was really relevant to keep most of the content intact is because prior to this virus spread, we have different ideas about what trauma is. Um, and my thought was with educators that are using this word, you know, trauma uh, around kids and everything, it was really painted with very, very broad strokes. And I thought, okay, well, you know, the rest of us don't really consider something that's difficult, you know, to be traumatic. But I found something really, really fascinating. I actually looked up the definition of trauma and the de official definition is a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And as Michelle points out, that's totally different for every single person. And as we've noticed in the middle of this virus, we are obviously all in the same storm, but we are by no means in the same kind of boat. And so what that is going to look like for all of us is going to be so vastly different that I thought pointing out that the definition itself is actually rather, rather broad. And so the pundits and the researchers and everybody talking about trauma-informed schools were, as it turns out, very right about this, that it's just very broad and how everybody experiences it and how they deal with it uh, is very, very different. And so we're going to get into a lot of those details in this conversation, but I'm very, very excited to be able to talk with her and uh, for you to get a much better sense of what this looks like from somebody who has a decades-old understanding of what trauma actually looks like in our schools. Hey, everybody. Great to see you again. We are on Rotten Apples, and today we have a very special guest, Michelle Benedict. Michelle, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Fantastic. So this um, is the first episode that we've run since coronavirus has <laughs> kind of taken over our lives. And there are a few others that I actually did before this whole thing started and then follow up and see how some of this stuff has changed. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how this conversation goes because we're finally kind of getting a groove here, but we're still trying to figure a whole lot of things out. So, uh, but today we wanted to talk uh, specifically about social emotional learning and trauma informed, which is a area of incredible importance to you. And so I wanted you to just kind of lead us off and we'll talk a little bit about how the virus has impacted, you know, all of your work. But if you would just get us started in explaining a little bit about who you are, how you got into education and um, how you sort of landed in this trauma informed and uh, SEL space. So um, the, 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 it's funny because my background really leads uh, the story of how and why I um, got into this. So I grew up in a, a very trauma-filled situation at home uh, and found myself at school uh, re-traumatized. I didn't really realize that until I got older of why I didn't like school when I was a kid. But then talking through some of the scenarios that happened to me at school, then I realized um, you know, that I was sort of, it was sort of happening at school and home. So I didn't really have a safe spice um, at whenever I was a kid. And um, so then that led to a lot of different decisions in my life, including getting married really young and having kids really young. And um, I was really very, very fortunate that uh, because I was really young and I was married really young, um, we were in the military. My, my husband at the time was in the military uh, and we were assigned to parents as teachers person. And that program absolutely changed my whole life uh, because I didn't have uh, parenting uh, modeling that I needed to raise a kid. <laughs> I was a kid myself, I, so I didn't have these resources. And so being assigned 
um, to this uh, with my first daughter, who's now 24. You know, it was it was life altering. And so she came to my house and taught me how to be a mom and uh, and even came extra more than she had to because she knew that I really needed it. Um, and then she encouraged me to take early childhood classes. And I fell in love with learning about uh, my daughter and then made me want to know about other kids. Because I was like, wow, I, I, I wish I would have understood this whenever I was a kid already. Whenever I was just 18, I was really getting an understanding of myself um, through learning about development and why I did some of the things the way I did. And so I started working in an early childhood and I actually ended up uh, getting child care uh, person of the year for the Air Force um, at Offutt Air Force Base. And I was only 20 years old. Um, and so I was trying to do things that were developmentally appropriate at 20 years old, if you can believe that. Um, and then I had my second daughter and then um, I, uh, I couldn't actually make a living doing early childhood. It's uh, at that time, 20 whatever years ago, I, you know, I didn't make enough to support a family and I was going, I then got divorced. And so I had a hard time um, making a living. So I did all kinds of other things. And I was kind of tucked in the back of my head that I wanted to get back in education at some point, which did happen in my thirties. I went back to school and, um, and then I ha already had those credits from early childhood that I started before. And I went ahead and um, did elementary on top of that. Um, I also have a daughter that is um, has special needs, and so I actually added special uh, education on top of that. So my undergrad is actually in those three areas, and if you think about what that'll do for what you would know, <laughs> you'll really understand development, and then you really understand interventions. And so when I joined the field as a certified teacher, not only did I have 20 plus years of uncertified parenting and working with special need kids and things on my own, but I also had all that child development tucked away from whenever I was 20 years old. So all of that just sort of evolved into a parenting style that was, I think, super successful that I would not have ever had um, had I not had that original experience with a parents as teachers person. And so then reflecting as um, things went on in my career and I saw how hard actually teaching was, I, I started out as a special ed teacher and that was incredibly hard in a rural district. Um, where you have, you know, 40 plus kids on your caseload. And so oftentimes it felt like you were sacrificing meetings for minutes. And so I didn't enjoy that. So I left that uh, and moved to Hazelwood and started working in gen ed. And, um, and that was, I thought, wow, I have all these tools. I'm going to be great moving to special, I made it moving to gen ed because I know all these things. And then I, uh, I learned that I didn't know anything. I, I walked in that first year, it was like starting again with brand new understanding. Um, not only did I work with totally different population of kids, but um, I learned that that population had a lot of trauma. And so at first, uh, when I first moved into that classroom, um, it's kind of interesting because I joined Hazelwood uh, in October. And the reason why is because they added another section of a classroom. So unfortunately at that time, the principal gave the teachers an opportunity to make my class list for me and not knowing me and, you know, not having a relationship with me. Um, if you are given an opportunity to get rid of a couple of hard kids in your room, uh, you might do that. Um, and so that kind of happened with everyone. So I got stacked uh, with 11 really, really hard kids out of 18 um, in my first year of gen ed. So uh, let's just say I cried a lot. Uh, that first year. And, and I found those kids really triggering because I had trauma. They had trauma. Um, I was in a new situation. And then other things comp compacted on top of that. So my mom passed away that year. And my son's appendix burst that year. 
And so I thought I was I was like, wait, I maybe I shouldn't be a teacher. <laughs> I really had that moment. And um, somebody uh, invited me to a, um, a conference on a Saturday and said, hey, you should come learn about trauma. I was like, wow, I think I really need to learn about trauma. You're right. So I went and took this uh, workshop with Heather Ford. I felt like uh, I woke up that day. Everything that she said not only made sense about what was happening in my classroom, but also my own experience at school, just sort of like, whoa, I was Billy. And I, that makes so much more sense of why some of the things I did, may, you know, the behaviors I had, and then how the response was uh, very not trauma-informed uh, on my school's part. I mean, it was the 80s, and that was kind of normal, but still yet, it's just still understanding to know where we came from. Um, and, and it was just incredible. So after that, I was like, wow, I need to learn more about this. <laughs> and so I started my master's right away because I, you know, I, I waited to get my bachelor's. So I started my master's right away. Um, and I was taking character ed classes and I, I had a teacher that said, Hey, you know, I know you've got a lot on your plate and you're really having a hard time with this class. So why don't you choose an area that's going to be most beneficial for you to study? And, um, and that way it can help you, you know, in your class. So I, did some research and I started learning about something called mindfulness and, um, and that, uh, and, and learning about that and understanding how much it was going to help memory, especially cause it's felt like I showed up to school every day and I would teach things and it would even seem like they had it. And then the next day we would walk back in and it would be like, I didn't even teach the day before at all. And it didn't make sense to me because it was smart kids who should be able to retain but if they're going home and, and experiencing trauma or experiencing trauma on a regular basis, their memory doesn't work the same way. So, so, <clears throat> so learning about mindfulness uh, and in this class then, you know, encouraged me to try new tools and to learn more. And uh, the next year, so I finished out that year, <laughs> uh, those kids, uh, yeah, I wish I could have done more to help them because I had a lot of kids that really needed what I was able to do the next year a lot. So, so I, I asked my principal and talked to my counselor and accessed some curriculum. I found a, a research-based curriculum called Mind Up. Um, and it, uh, it's actually created through the Goldie Hawn Foundation. And it's a really good curriculum, to, a good place to start for, play, for people who want to start a, a full school mindfulness program and very inexpensive. But I, I asked my principal and counselor and said, hey, can I start this on day one uh, with the kids? And, and we did. So I was really lucky that the kids that I had the second year were supposed to loop with the previous teacher. And so it was uh, the same kids from the previous year. I got them as a class. So I at least had their behavior data to, um, to compare how uh, their year went in that way and their grades in that way as a group. So uh, in the previous year, and I taught them in fourth grade, they were third graders the year before, there were 49 suspensions out of that group of kids. Wow. Uh, uh, over 70 office referrals total, about 49 suspensions, all of them for something that required you to hit somebody else. You had to put your hands on somebody else. There wasn't a suspension for uh, some other reason. And so uh, that's a lot, first of all. And so I was a little nervous whenever I first got that data and I said, I'm going to try this thing. <laughs> but I did. So on the day one, the very first thing I did was I taught the kids how to do um, breathing. And right away, the kids were like, wow, this is weird, but it was kind of nice. And some of the kids didn't do it. But by the time that we started doing that three times a day over six weeks, 
it changed my whole life and how it felt in my room. Um, and then kids started saying, oh, we feel really uh, dysregulated, which is the word we used for off task, basically. Um, we should breathe again. So kids started asking to breathe more. And so some days when we had bad days, we'd be breathing eight times. But you know what? The kids kept, you could see it. You could see the stress fall off of them whenever they would breathe. And so that was how I first started down this road is I had this experience and then I went through a lot of trauma and then I found this tool and then it just opened up a whole new world of how I could handle uh, my own stress and how I could teach kids to handle their stress. And then I wanted to change a lot more things in my classroom beyond that, because once you have that physical ah uh, feeling in your classroom, then you're like, okay, what else can I do to make this feel even better? And so that's where I started learning more about social emotional learning specifically and especially trauma-informed practices specifically so that I could, um, I could help those kids that nobody seems to understand how to help um, because I have the perspective of that kid in my head too. I know what those words felt like. I know what the actions felt like. So one of the, um, the experiences that really stuck with me the most as a student, and this is the one that I like to share with people because it really shows um, how, how far we've come. So I was in first grade and I, <clears throat> I was just at a, a, a metropolitan school here, um, you know, local, local school. And uh, I was in first grade and uh, I was new that year and I was talkative. And I was talkative because I wasn't really allowed to, uh, to share a lot of things at home. I had very strong personalities at home, so I was very quiet at home. So I was a talkative kid in that class. And every time uh, that I would get too chatty, um, she would put a refrigerator box that she had brought from home around my desk. And so what that proceeded to do, first of all, is uh, I would have tantrums uh, because I didn't like that closed in feeling. I didn't, it didn't feel good. And um, it made kids made fun of me. So it made it even harder for me, a new kid, um, to make friends. And so, you know, she put the box up, I would knock the box down. Um, and then it would become escalated. Um, over this box. Um, and, and, and then it became a control thing. And then I could tell uh, that she didn't like me because we, we had this fight all the time, you know, of, of, I just wanted, if she, I guess in my mind, if she would have understood that I just needed her to spend a little more time um, talking to me or listening to me or giving me an opportunity to speak, uh, that I probably wouldn't have needed to talk so badly. So it just, it's so funny now uh, looking back, like that, that practice actually would be illegal because it's seclusion. We don't seclude kids. Um, and, and I'm glad that we don't anymore, but it's still, we want to kick kids out of classrooms. Uh, and that's still a form of abandonment that kids feel abandoned. They feel disconnected from the person that they need to be most connected with. And that's the teacher. And so having that perspective not only as now a teacher, as the kid, as a parent, um, I think has, has made uh, me a really powerful ally for, <laughs> for trauma-informed because it can be overcome. There's a lot of traumas that can be overcome, but it takes a lot of effort on the teacher part uh, to build the relationship with a kid who might not trust, um, who might not uh, believe in them. And that's, that's hard work. Uh, but I think I'm lucky that I'm in a space to be able to do that kind of work. 
I think that uh, that can resonate with a lot of teachers and administrators and so many of us end up in this work because of something that happened, you know, mm-hmm. in our childhood or in our own education and our own experience. Mm-hmm. Um, that's almost always what drives it. And so it's interesting to hear the kind of, you know, personal experience that you had with it. And then as a young mother trying to figure it out, and it's so funny that you mentioned parents as teachers, because our last guest was a woman who served in multiple director capacities, um, parents as teachers, as that organization was undergoing a lot of change in how they engage with families and how they, you know, help to partner with them. And so um, it's good to hear that that yeah, I think everybody good. should get that. I, I I wish it was available to all because even people who are affluent who might not be at risk. Um, so I know the program doesn't always have the capacity, but everyone can learn a little bit better of a different perspective of their parenting. You know? Oh yeah, not everybody received the same kind of parenting. I mean, even when we look at ourselves as parents and all of the kids that our kids are friends with, and then you engage with their parents, and some of them totally get it. You know, you all kind of have similar philosophies and some of them are like, you made that sweet little kid? (laughs) How did that happen? Yeah. 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 And sometimes the opposite, like really, really hard kids can have like the sweetest parents um, and they're doing everything they can. And you're like, whoa, I expected something totally different. So it really kind of goes where our bias that helps us understand our bias in that situation because everybody's a a product of situations, but also a product of their own perspective of that situation. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. most definitely. So let me ask you, because these these topics have definitely been (laughs) an issue, you know, more recently um, than you know, I, I trauma-informed in SEL, didn't, I didn't start seeing a whole lot on it until, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, I started right. seeing more and more on it. And um, it there, there are always a million different things that teachers have to do. You know, there's, mm-hmm. and it, I don't want to I don't want to call it a trend because it's not, you know, these are things that kids are, are dealing with, but it's always like one new thing, one new thing, one new thing. And I always wonder the teachers who've done this 40 years, like how many of these, you know, things have they seen, um, over right. the years. And so with trauma-informed and SEL in particular, I thought about that a lot as this virus started taking hold because I started looking at the things that I had planned before this and what were priorities and what were my serious concerns, the things that I really had to address. And then after it was like, oh, I cannot believe I ever thought that was serious. <laughs> that was ever important. So, you know, what's different about this topic now than maybe when you saw before and maybe, maybe not a whole lot is different. Maybe it's just a little bit more amplified now. Well, I do think it's amplified right now, but I think what's different is that I don't think people understood how the 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 relevance of it in their everyday interactions with kids um, as much as they do when they can't be in their presence. Now that you're a, a visitor in kids' homes, for example, even I'm seeing things uh, that I n- would never have seen before. And um, it makes me understand, even though I have a great and wonderful close relationship with the kids in my class this year, we're like a little family. It's so wonderful. Um, I I knew the highlights. And now that I see some things and I hear things um, in their in their little worlds, um, it makes me really know how even somebody like myself who put a lot of emphasis on it still didn't put enough Um, because they're little people first. 
they're people first. We are all humans first. And I can't say that enough because we always kind of want to be a robot. Um, and whenever things get uncomfortable with all this feeling stuff, then we want to check out by do going outside of ourselves, um, by doing things like binge watching or binge eating sometimes, binge drinking, all these things that we can do um, at, in excess. And you can even be a binge exerciser that you spend so much time exercising that you don't spend any time working within. And so I think um, what's really changed is that you cannot deny that it needs to be, this work needs to be done now. Um, because everyone is experiencing collective trauma. And so you can't say, oh, they're just being bad. Now we have to say, oh, wait, everyone has experienced trauma. Now we have to address it with everyone, which we should have been doing already, because everyone has already experienced some form of trauma. It just doesn't, it looks different for different people. And so it's really easy to say, oh, that kid has never had trauma because they have two parents and they're doing well in school and all these things. That doesn't mean that they aren't exposed to their parents watching news that might be in might be outside of this kid's uh, window of tolerance because that's all that trauma is. People think trauma has to be something very big. Trauma is anything outside of your window of tolerance. And so for you, that might be different than it is for me. And it might be different depending on the situation. So I always tell people, for example, um, whenever I was uh, younger, I worked a job that I burned myself a lot. Uh, burned myself on my fingertips so much that I can pick a noodle out of boiling water and it doesn't hurt my fingers anymore. Right. Because I burned myself so many times. It doesn't bother me. Now, do you want to stick your fingers in boiling water, Amy? Probably not. <laughs> not at the moment. No. Not used to that. <laughs> so uh, my window of tolerance for pain, especially that particular physical pain is very high, might not be for the next person. It's the same way with different experiences of trauma. So just because it's not traumatic to you does not mean that that household might not still feel traumatic. Maybe that wonderful affluent household is um, helicopter parents that put a lot of anxiety and pressure uh, involved that might make that kid feel um, not good enough. That's trauma. So I would say that we've all experienced some level in some form or fashion and parts of our lives. There isn't a part that you either didn't see something, worry about something. Now, whether you experience that to a degree that it changes your brain, that's that's what's to be determined, you know. So so some things that are happy trauma, uh, you know, happy stress still have uh, impacts on your brain just as much as really, really hard things. So it just depends on the person and their uh, and their window of tolerance. So your resilience in certain situations might be higher than your resilience in others. Does that make sense? So it's, yeah, it makes complete sense, actually. And I, I don't think I've really heard it explained quite that way before. And in light of everything that's happening, um, it's so interesting to me because my thoughts about what trauma in my own situation, I've got myself and my husband and my two teenagers in one house, which is traumatic just all by yeah, it's very, very different. I mean, I have to find a new space. I can't use my office, you know, yep. I, everything is just scattered. But even that is, is very, you know, I, I thought, you know, it's an annoyance, but it's something I can definitely figure out. But in hearing you talk about this, 
it kind of makes me wonder. So my husband um, works for a credit union and mm -hmm. they hit, he's been working insane hours since the stimulus money came out because they have, to, <laughs> yeah, it is, right. Uh -huh. They have to get it. And it's, he doesn't even mind. I mean, he certainly doesn't mind working the hours. I've, I've had crazy hours. You've had crazy hours, you know, and when it's something you care about, for um, sure. you can deal, but it's these stories of these people running small businesses. Some of them have been in it for years. Some of them are just getting started. They don't know. It's not even just the business owners. It's all of their employees. It's all of their supply chain. Yeah. And it, I, God, as an economics teacher myself, I'm just looking at this and I can't sleep yeah. at night. And I don't even know these people. I have yeah, not, that's I don't that's know trauma. Absolutely. And it's just hearing, see, that's your exposure to trauma. So that's why, like, even watching the news for a kid, the unknown for children is trauma. So us not knowing as the adults, you can uh, that's hard enough. Can you imagine uh, an eight-year-old who just got their school taken away from them and they don't really understand why? Because this whole thing is invisible in their mind. And so how will they, they can't know. Yeah, so um, I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing to think that, that uh, it would not be trauma. You know what I mean? Um, and so, but there's some kids who have already had trauma. So this is making it complex trauma. And so, uh, the difference in what we're going to have to do before and what we have to do from this point on is different because before we were looking at situational trauma, um, different specific situations. And now for a lot of kids that we already knew had trauma, now we're going to be looking at complex trauma because not only did they have that, but they have a disruption in, in schedule. They had a loss of connections. Um, they might even have to move or uh, parents have to change jobs. Um, all of these things, these factors really, um, you know, contribute to how well your brain can operate. We are humans first and that brain can only do so much when it's stressed. Um, and the, the smart parts of that brain and the long-term memory parts of that brain when you're stressed stop working at their capacity because you're you're worrying and ruminating about the unknown or the things that you're scared about. Um, and so it does that. Um, our brains are not meant to make us happy. Our brains are to keep us alive. And so when you're in that state, your brain is constantly feeling like fight or flight or freeze or appease. But we are going to be looking at some pretty severe, I think, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, high rates of that. Um, coming back. And I think that we will see uh, more kids with sensory issues, especially OCD, uh, because if their parents were extremist in this, um, they could be like extreme, not worried about it or extreme hyper vigilant about it. That could cr create um, uh, some OCD things um, uh, in kids. So I think we're going to be looking at even more complex trauma than we were before. Um, and my, my biggest concern with it is that since normally we would have caregivers that were regulated and able to respond, um, since we've all experienced trauma, uh, we have to also look at the, the caregivers more. Um, so I would love if uh, this is a great time for people to start taking up the two ways that you can get, you know, cortisol down in your body, which is um, a mindful breathing practice and exercise, regular exercise. So if you can do those two things, um, you can reduce the cortisol in your body. And those are the only ways that you can you can really fight stress and be resilient physiologically right now. And so if we can get that message out to people, especially caregivers, um, so that they will have full cups whenever those kids come back to school later. 
Um, that's going to be key is having regulated adults because we, I think whenever we throw structure back on kids with complex trauma, we're going to see kids uh, push back. And so that's a, that's a great point that we tend to in education focus on the students, um, you know, for very good reason. But, uh, you know, as everybody in this field and in any field knows, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So um, when we talk about, you know, self-care has definitely been a topic of conversation over the last, you know, couple of years in various workshops uh -huh. and professional developments. And um, so I'm glad you point out things like breathing practices. And, uh, you know, I do, I've, done in the past a lot of workshops just on habit formation because all I hear from people is well I don't have time to take care of myself I'm like you gotta find time sweetheart because if you are not figuring well, out you find time to not to yourself, you either find time not to take care of yourself or you'll find time to take care of yourself later with health issues um, because that's yeah. what it leads to stress is a killer for real and there's you know some specific ways that you can take care of your brain especially because that controls everything and so people want to take care of different parts of their body I wish they would really start to consider your brain because your brain is going to run everything for a long time. <laughs> and so how about, uh, you know, it's nice to worry about your skin and some people worry about their hair and maybe worry about their nails. Come on, brain's more important. Let's do brain. Um, so thinking about hydration, that's key. Um, and so a lot of people are running on empty right now. And some of that's because we just need to be better hydrated. Um, another one is to, uh, you know, a breathing practice and a breathing practice does not have to be that complicated. Um, there's great apps, um, but, you know, just taking some deep breaths, thinking and, and taking some deep breaths in your nose and holding it and then breathing out and in a pattern of four, seven, eight. So three, uh, four going in, holding it for seven and then breathing out for eight. Um, just doing that a few times every time that you are switching activities. Um, the more that you do it proactively, the more that it builds a loop in your brain. So you know, oh yeah, it takes one minute, you know, several times a day to take some deep breaths and, and get your, your brain regulated. And about six weeks, you start to notice that you become, uh, your brain starts to shift to a little bit more regulated state as the norm. Um, and, uh, I can't really explain what it feels like <laughs> until you do it um, for six weeks, but I can tell you that um, I used to be more reactive. And so I would just make quick my decisions based on emotion. And now um, I've been you know, doing mindful breathing for lots of years now. Um, and now I definitely pause. There's definitely a pause in there. It's very rare that I fly off the handle. And I used to be somebody who did often very easily. And so now, I mean, it, it's just, it makes, it makes me feel better because it's not often that I have regret in what I say. Uh, because um, I try to be really intentional about my words. And so being mindful, uh, and especially starting with just that breathing practice sort of spread out into my whole life of intentionality with everything. Um, and now that does that make my life perfect? No, because stress is going to come regardless. That's what life is. Um, but I do feel like that I have uh, better tools to handle it whenever you're more intentional with your responses than if you react and because that can just cause more problems. So I always tell teachers and they don't like hearing this, but teachers are the number one escalator of behavior. Um, because when a child uh, does something, there's a function of their behavior always. And if you just take it on surface uh, of what you think it is without asking and getting more information, then it's easy to react. 
just like anybody, if you just take people's face value on anything, their tone or read an email and you don't ask questions, um, and you could get really upset by people's words, but you don't understand their intent when they came out, those words came out. And also if we understand um, when people are heightened or when they're upset, that the smart part of their brain is most likely shut down. <laughs> so if somebody sent you an upset email or said something to you when they're upset, the logic and empathy part of their brain is not on. They're only driven by emotions. And so it's really easy to react to that. However, if you have that pause or you can start you know, learning the skill of asking more questions instead of uh, having an emotional response, um, or restating to that person so they understand what your understanding is, then you're going to get a lot uh, better reaction from kids. So um, I always found it's funny because I, I felt like on my plan time and lunchtime, I always just went around and de-escalated kids in the building um, because I just needed to go to the bathroom. And on the way to the bathroom, there'd be a kid on the stairs or there'd be a kid in the hallway. And I just want to stop because I always have that village mentality of, it, you know, we all should be doing it uh, together. So I would hope that they would do that for one of my kids. And so uh, I always found it funny um, that about 25% of the kids that I would de-escalate before 11 o'clock, most of them, just nobody had asked them if they had breakfast. And usually by the time that I would get them all calmed down, they just needed to eat something and then they were happy. And so as uh, thinking about trauma-informed, I mean, people say it's one more thing, but that one more thing sometimes of just asking the question, did you have breakfast, which could be implemented in a check-in as part of attendance. You could take attendance by, did you have breakfast? Yes or no on the board <laughs> or, in a, or in a document on a padlet or however you do it. Um, and that, that could be how you take, take attendance or how are you feeling today and have three levels of how you're feeling and know that you need to check in with those kids who are feeling like they really need extra time. So you can build these layers in without it being an extra thing. Um, and it being more of the culture of, of who you are and what you do than a thing to do, if that makes sense. In my classroom, um, uh, trauma-informed and SEL is not a thing to do. It's just who we are. It's interesting because with all of the, with everything that you're talking about, the um, self-care and the breathing and trauma-informed, you know, style culture and things like that, uh, certainly when I work with a lot of educators, I just tell them, look, are, are you the alternative to what you're learning about in this workshop or whatever is you could end up spending a lot of time just on discipline. So yeah. which would you rather spend time on? <laughs> like you can right, spend time right. dealing you can be proactive with, with these yeah. practices and, and, and build them into your la into your classroom culture, or you can, you can have to respond to discipline all day. And I always found that by doing these few layers of SEL and trauma informed practices, things like mindfulness, um, things like check-ins, things like movement breaks, things like short uh, you know, short stints of work time, the lighting, the sound, all those things, um, making sure to be really intentional. Uh, then I, I wasn't chasing behavior. I was teaching kids and I, they were teaching me too. And they were teaching each other because that's how things work in my classroom. So the kids who sometimes would feel like they needed to show out uh, to have behavior, to, to show out in a bad way, those kids became leaders in my classroom because they found out that that good felt better. Um, and that I believed in them and they could, they could, they could get the attention and, and all their needs met without doing it in a, in a negative way. Yeah. Well, I think too, that what, and certainly I, I would say people in our field, but I think this is true of, of all people is that when we get information like this from administrators, from books, from PD, um, we don't 
always need to take everything exactly as it's given and try to apply it to our own circumstances is every person's different. Every classroom right. is different from if you're a middle school teacher, minute to minute, things are different, you know, for you, for sure. you never know what's going on with those kids. So with all of that stuff, you know, it's funny to hear you talk about, um, you know, basic breathing exercises, which are just like the easiest thing in the world. My schedule is a little different. And I also deal with a lot of like neck and back and, you know, a lot of I have athletic injuries. And so I do yoga on a pretty regular basis. Yes, and too. that kind of gets, yeah, that kind of gets that breathing part in for me. Uh -huh. When somebody sends me a pretty email, I play a game on my phone <laughs> because we talk about like how, now you can't always do that when you're teaching a classroom full of kids, you know, so right. that I get, but funny because you talk about the power of that brain. I tell you what. When you're playing a game, you literally can't focus on anything else. Your brain is not capable Absolutely. of multitasking in a game. So all of a sudden, whatever I was pissed about flew <laughs> right out of my brain. Well, and so, so and we need to we need to use that. We know that about adults, and we absolutely know that that's how the brain works. So why can't we have that as an intervention for kids? Because, uh, and I, I think that would be a great uh, intervention. However, uh, I think you would get pushback from teachers who would say wait, they just got in trouble and now they get to play a game. Yeah. Um, and that's, but, but what we need them to understand is that we need their brain to switch channels and get off the channel they're on so that they, when they switch back to that channel, then they're not disrupting your whole life in your room and the, all the other kids learning. So sometimes in order for a kid to deescalate, they literally have to take themselves out of that situation completely for a few minutes so that they can stop feeling all that emotion. And yeah, Give them a game. I think that's great. But I, the, I, this is where um, teachers need to understand the differences between rewards and interventions um, and understand that interventions do work and that we have to do them a certain way and that it might not be what you think is going to be the outcome, but, but behavior people understand the brain and we know how to get them to that end point. So yes, maybe in the beginning that kid gets uh, to go to a game and then maybe later on we can get a different choice in there. But at first when we're working with complex trauma, sometimes we're going to do whatever has to be done to get that kid to change channels so that they can deescalate because some kids do not have any skills in deescalation because it's not modeled for them at home. And so if you have a kid that their parents, for example, you know, uh, get ragey and then, you know, throw things and then they don't deescalate, you know, and they don't take any breaths, they don't do anything until they're, you know, got it all out. Then, of course, that child, it's going to be normal for them to think that they're allowed to get it all out. And they and they, then they, they don't know what to do after that. Maybe they see their parent take a drink and then that's how they deescalate at the end of theirs. You know what I mean? So there's, you have to remember that what's being modeled for kids is really the only skill set they have. And if we're not teaching that those skills explicitly, like breathing practices, like other ways to deescalate, because kids need a toolbox of things. And you, so do you as a teacher. And so the kids would watch me throughout the day as I would get frustrated. They would, I would be very human. I'm very human with the kids in my room and say, I'm feeling escalated. I'm going to go over here and I'm going to give me five. And so I would tell them, give me a couple minutes. 
I would go get myself back together and they would see me either breathe or um, I have sensory toys because I have a little bit of sensory issues too. Um, or I would sit on the couch and, 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 and hug a pillow for a minute and just breathe for a second. And so the more that I modeled those things, then the kids would start doing them without me even really having to teach it. They just saw it like, oh, wait, yeah. she is. So I get overwhelmed a little bit easy in the afternoon because my medicine starts to wear off. And so I, I even tell the kids about that because I have kids in my room that have ADHD that also know what that feeling is like, where you start feeling like, man, I just want recess. I just need recess, but we have work to do. <laughs> so, um, so let's dance for 10 minutes and then let's get to work and then we'll dance for another 10 minutes and 20 minutes just so we can get it out. And so having that understanding um, and being able to implement and show kids, I'm a human too, and this is how I regulate in different ways on different parts of the day. Um, I think that was uh, just doing that practice alone would not only make teachers feel better because that there's their self care right there. They're taking care of themselves along the way and still waiting till the end of the day after they've held in all that frustration, and then they're going to try to self care when they're exhausted. No, if you build it into okay, when you start feeling frustrated. What, what do you do? And how do you show You say to kids, I'm feeling frustrated. I'm going to do X, Y, or Z to feel, uh, or what could we do? I've even asked my class, what do you, I'm feeling frustrated. What can we do? And the kids, you know, after a time had tools like, oh, let's breathe. Oh, let's do go noodle. Oh, let's just, uh, let's have quiet time for a couple minutes or let's have talk time for a couple minutes about not something else. Um, you know, we would, we would have all these tools by, especially this time of the year. And so it doesn't have to be something else. Yeah. It can be, it can be this proactive thing that you're are, you know, built into all the things you're already doing. Well, unfortunately, this is, and it, it's, it's not always like this. I think there are a lot of workshops that, you know, do help teachers talk about self-care issues like that, but it's usually something separate. You know, it's go to church, right. go to yoga, yeah, it's not really worked in. And it's, it's unfortunate because the kind of things you're talking about, yes, of course, teachers should, you know, be checking in with students saying, okay, I'm feeling triggered right now. But usually what happens is they lose it over something stupid that one kid did in the corner of the room. And then they lecture all of the students for 20 minutes about how terrible they are. Exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, it happens all the time. And it just, uh, even working this in with teachers and kind of explaining to them that you're not, I can't tell you how many of them would tell me, I just really don't want to look, you know, stupid in front of my kids. I want to understand when we talk about technology usually, and it's, I, I need to understand all this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, do you, you really think that the kids think that you are perfect, <laughs> that you know wow. everything? And and Show you don't want them to. That's the thing is we as adults need to model that we don't know all the answers, but this is how we find them. And, and I don't know how to always handle every emotion I get, but this is how I try. Um, and so being human and understanding that we're not robots and making sure they understand they don't ever have to be a robot because that's how kids then turn those things off hold on to them and then end up with mental illness issues in, in, in older grades is because uh, a lot of the times we just say, you'll be okay, or go ahead and just keep focusing. No, no. Sometimes kids need to feel what they're feeling, just like you need to model what you're feeling um, because you're allowed to feel you're a human being. 
Yeah. You're allowed to be frustrated and you're allowed to share that with others so that they understand what that emotion is, that it doesn't have to be the end all be all that, oh, wait, I'm feeling this and here's what we can do. And so there's a lot of discussions we have about like the other day, I actually, we do fun Friday every Friday. And last week we, um, we had our first week of virtual uh, week where we started this software um, that we started working with in the district. It started Monday and it's really hard. And my kids are melting because it's not the way I taught things and I'm having a hard time navigating it and they're having a hard time navigating it. And by the time I got done with being on calls for 12 hours every day, Monday through Thursday, I had to cancel fun Friday. And I, I sent an email out to parents and I was like, I'm I feel really bad about this, but honestly, I need to, to show them that whenever I'm burned out too, that I've, we've got to take a day. And so that's what we did. And then, so instead of fun Friday, we did magical Monday. Um, and usually we do, we, we do things like cooking and fun connecting things together. Um, and I, then we had a good talk about burnout and how Miss Benedict needs to not work 12 hours a day. So if you need help on this software, we need to do it within these certain hours. So I, this week I, 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 I modeled showing boundaries. So I, I set up the calendar and I showed them all the subjects and when they can get help. I sent that same schedule to parents. So letting them know I'm only going to work one evening um, this week because I worked all the evenings last week trying to help parents understand it and kids understand it. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to stick with. And I explained it again today just because a kid was on there la late last night and he really wanted help and I didn't respond. And uh, so that's he, he was sad. And I, I, and then I had to explain to him, well, remember last week, Miss Benedict was working so many hours that I had to cancel fun Friday and I don't want to do that this week. So I'm trying to set it up where I am, where I work a reasonable amount of time. And I'm not always on a screen because, you know, I don't like screens that much. And they also know that about me because I'm a big nature person. I mean, I use screens for what they need to be used for, but I'm happy off a screen. <laughs> so um, so it, it was really nice that he understood once I explained it. And that I'm gonna, you know, reinforce those boundaries and 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 help the kids understand that I'm a person always first. And even before I'm a mom or a teacher, I have to be a person. And so if I'm not feeling good and I can't do everything exactly a hundred, just like you can't do everything exactly a hundred, but even if I'm not feeling a hundred and you're not feeling a hundred, we can work together and be compassionate and we can be kind and we can and we can um, do the best we can, whatever percentage we're at. Okay, everyone, I hope you heard something new and useful today. If you want to learn more or have an idea for a future episode of Rotten Apples, just go to educatestl.org, where you'll find resources and links from today's chat and fun news and event information for educators all over the STL. Thanks for listening and connecting with all of us Rotten Apples and for doing what you can to get better every single day. See you soon.